November 2013, Typhoon Haiyan, known here in the Philippines as Yolanda, made landfall out of the Pacific. Rachel Parsons is a Los Angeles-based journalist and producer. She is a freelance reporter for Reuters and was part of the LA Press Club award-winning team on Homeless Realities. She writes for The Hub in Los Angeles and The Fourth Revolution. She has written for PBS NewsHour Online and had video published for Utah Public Radio Online. She is the executive producer and host of the international solo travel series, The Peregrine Dame, which airs on public television and streams on Amazon. She interned at the San Juan Record in Utah, where she also co-produced a piece for PBS NewsHour. She earned her BA in journalism at USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. You can find out more about her from her website, rachelparsons.com, or from the website for the Peregrine Dame, theperegrinedame.com, or on Instagram, at parsons underscore rachel underscore d. Now, finally, a city more of dreams and gold than blood. I've landed in Yangon not knowing anyone here like usual. Welcome, Rachel Parsons. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> so, uh, the way you and I know one another is we shared space as roommates for the year, I think. I can't remember. It was something like that. But we'd known yeah. each other for years before we did that. Yeah, so we met. You had to help clarify this. I knew I met you at the Tsunami Beach Club. <laughs> it was one of four jobs I had at the time in San Diego. I was new there. And uh, it was a barista at two places. And then I was a waiter at the people that own Tsunami Beach Club's restaurant, the Parrot Grill. Can't believe I remember these names. I can't either because I wouldn't have remembered the, the grill. Yeah. And then downstairs was the Tsunami Beach Club, a beach-themed nightclub. And they came from... I cannot remember, but they, they came from somewhere else, came to San Diego, started a business. And I met you there at some point. To me, you were just the, the pretty girl that everybody had a crush on. And I was busy being the coat check guy and the pizza guy. And as you clarified, the way we met each other was you took over that position. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I remember. I think you had been promoted to wait tables, uh, which was a site more lucrative than, you know, coat checking. So they needed somebody for that. And then before it was over with, I ended up as the door cashier. Uh, and then they fired all the door staff at one point. So I oh. got just like cut off in that. <laughs> wow. Now, around that time, I had moved to San Diego, probably not even a year before starting there. And one of the first jobs that I had was I was a barista at the Carriage Stop Cafe. Alex Gutierrez? I think so. I think. That's what I remember, yeah. He was one of the baristas there. We became friends. My buddy Scott and I had moved out to San Diego and he was like finally admitting to himself that he was gay. So he was really coming into his own. I was wanting to come into my own. We were going in different directions. And Alex said, hey, I really need a, a roommate. So I moved in with Alex and then we all met you and you became one of our friends there. And as I had shared in recent social media stuff, <laughs> there was a, there was a night of uh, yep a night of hallucinogens not on your part but on my part and Alex's just to save face for you there so uh, yeah thank you <laughs> I'm an actor would they expect us to be you know a la boheme lifestyle so you ended up putting makeup on my bearded face that night and Alex went through all these different dark and light parts of his trip and it was a crazy wild night and then around that time you were living just up the street with your boyfriend at the time. Don't remember his name now. No, you know what? I wasn't. I remember, what was my first? I needed a place to stay for a while. I think, yeah, his name was Sean. 
Right. I mean, you, you could be faulted for not because I barely remember it. Um, <laughs> sorry, but I think the thing was we had planned to move in together shortly and we had gaps or I had a gap between where I was staying and needed to get out of before he and I got an apartment because we ended up in an apartment in that building where you and Alex had an apartment. But prior to that, for a month at least, maybe longer, I crashed with you guys in that apartment. But at that point, there was also at least one other person, maybe two in there. It was like you and Alex and Patricia and I, and it was just a two bedroom apartment. The thing was tiny. But yeah. I remember something like four or five of us mushed in there for, I don't remember how many weeks now. Leading up to us living together and while we lived together, you were already in SAG, right? Yeah. And you were doing a lot of stunt work. The one thing I remember you doing was a Dennis Hopper, uh, like B movie was held for ransom is what it was oh, called. Oh God, you do where you do have the memory. I'm, that's great because I wouldn't have pulled that one out either. Yeah, that was one of the first jobs I did in the stunt world. And I ended up, I believe, becoming SAG eligible off that film, but it was shot in Florida. I, when I moved to San Diego around, the end of the first year, I started as an extra because there was a studio in San Diego. So I started, I had done that kind of work in Dallas, I'm from Fort Worth. And I knew there was a little television business in San Diego. And for whatever reason, I just wasn't ready to go to LA yet. So I plunked it down in San Diego, started working as uh, an extra briefly, and then worked as a photo double on television series down there that had children in them. So I don't know if you remember at the time, I was short. Still am, but at the time. <laughs> um, you, know, you have to remember then I was short. <laughs> so I started photo doubling kids and then worked my way into doing some stunt work on shows that had kids in them, like the pre the preteen to a tween age group. Uh, and I did a handful of jobs that were pretty darn lucrative over the years and then work sort of dried up. But yeah, concurrently, when I wasn't doing that. Uh, I spent three or four years working as props assistant well on television productions that were down there. So, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the production world below the line for a long time. I realized that when it came right down to it, it wasn't what I wanted to do with a career for good. Um, so I ended up moving to LA and doing other things, also in entertainment for a while, but I, I moved my way around through the business quite a bit. And um, yeah, it was. San Diego in your early 20s, in the early 2000s, was, it was a good place to be, although it always, I don't know about you, but I always felt um, a little unmoored through it all, because it was, it, parts of it and the city to me still feels fairly transient, and so many people do come through it for all kinds of reasons. I mean, military is a big one, so people are truly transient and come through for short amounts of time, and that vibe sort of permeated those early years for me. Um, but, you know, we all would end up sort of, I think, by, you know, magnetic attraction, ending up in the same little circles that, that supported us all for, I mean, for a while. I don't remember what year you left San Diego. First of all, I agree with you 100%. When I look, when I reflect, I could not have wished for a better 20s experience than being in Southern California. It was, uh, I, I was in love with San Diego before I ever stepped foot in it. I stayed in love with it until probably the year before I left. Um, so I was in San Diego for almost 11 years. I left in 07. I moved to LA in 06, but I thought you were already gone by then. I understand why you say that 
stunt work, you didn't see a future in that because that had to be grueling. Mm -hmm. But but thinking about what you're into though, like when the martial arts that you yeah, um, well, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily stunt work that I decided to walk away from. Although when you see people who do that kind of work and they're still working in their 40s or 50s, but they're moving like they're 60 or 70 because they've been injured, that sort of rings your bells. What I didn't want to do, I had, I did much more props work at that point. And if you're working as as a layman on set, it's it's a manual labor job, and you're up at five, unloading trucks at six, and you work 13-hour days. Often we often worked a lot longer. Um, we used to do what was, and these were union shows even, so we had some, we had some restrictions, but, you know, you would still work with Fridays, where you'd start, you'd work Friday morning through Saturday morning, um, and it was just a grueling schedule. It was great in your early 20s because it was really good pay, and you'd be unemployed for a good chunk of the year, so at that point, if you handled your money right, then you would have a lot of time off. You were lucky you'd have shows to go back to. And I caught it at a period where, you, we, where we were still making television series. And I'm talking about basic cable episodic stuff, nothing, nothing with enormous budgets, but we would still make 22 episode seasons. That doesn't happen anymore. One friend who still works on a TV series in LA who makes 22 se episodes a season. But you could see some of the writing on the wall. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do for a living long term. And I thought if you're going to tw transition, you need to do it sooner rather than later. So I went ahead and just uh, just did. I ended up backing out of it enough then that I I moonlighted as a personal trainer for three years. The last three years I was in LA uh, to make ends meet, and I enjoyed that very much too. But again, it wasn't something that um, compelled me to make a lifelong career out of it. So I didn't. I mean. The truth is, if I was still doing any one of several things I did in my 20s, I could probably still be working and have done just fine. But none of it was exciting enough to make me want to do it for 20 or 30 years. So I would just stop. <laughs> could have planned some things better. I didn't walk away from that so much as it left town. Because I doubled kids, you had to work. You had to wait for kids to work. And then the kids had to do something remotely dangerous to get hired. Then you had to match the kid because stunt doubles obviously have to, if you're doubling an actor specifically, you have to kind of look like him at, at the very least. And I had worked on some good films in the early 2000s, but then a lot of production left LA and left California. So when movies like uh, Lava Girl were made, they were made in Toronto. And that was in the time period that I was still working. But a lot of that stuff that would have hired people like me to double those sort of tween kid actors, they just left town. And normally when they do that, the industry uses local hires rather than ship too many people from Los Angeles and have to pay for that. So the, the basic thing with that was the phone just quit ringing. And I was in, I was connected into some pretty well known working stunt coordinators and things. So had it been the other way around, I would have continued that for a while longer because it was, <laughs> it was great. They rarely blow the kid up. And you're still getting paid what, you know, everybody else is getting paid because they're union jobs. But it just croaked. Yeah. And I do remember one of the things you were working on in L.A. at that time, I believe, was Panic Room when you doubled for Kristen Stewart. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, I mean, I think it released in 01. So we shot in 2000. But um, that was amazing. And that was one of the... That was one of the longest jobs I ever did, which was great 
because we worked off and on for six months. And on feature films now anymore, that almost doesn't happen either. So the whole business has changed and shifted in ways that just, unless you're five, six, and you can double an actress for most of your career, and I've worked with those people, they're very fortunate, um, I couldn't keep doing it. My actors outgrew me and they would, you know, eventually I would, I would be replaced. You did this, the Peregrine Dame, and I didn't, I didn't know that you were doing this until in the, the fact or after the fact, I'm not sure, but you were doing what was my fantasy job back then of, wow, wouldn't it be great to, one day, to get hired by one of those travel shows and just travel around? That's your job. Oh my God. Now that I'm an act, actor in New York, once the role gets turned back on, it's hard for me to fathom wanting to be anywhere else other than LA or maybe London. The other thing is when you get older, we get our, our habits and our personalities and what we like, it's a little bit more calcified. Traveling constantly is probably not conducive to, to that, to comfortability. <laughs> How did this happen? How did it transpire that you, that first of all, that you decided journalism was a passion, that you wanted to travel the world and do this all on your own? Hi, I'm Rachel Parsons and I travel alone. All over the world. In order to show you that traveling solo doesn't have to be so scary. And that traveling alone doesn't mean you're lonely. So don't wait for somebody to come with you. The world is not going to wait for you. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Be a peregrine dame. Be a peregrine dame. The evolution of it came, I'll try to stick with the abridged version, but in my, I was 27, 26, 27, I'd gotten to LA. I was still working in entertainment, but I was working in office jobs and studios, um, and uh, the daylight's out of me. So I knew I didn't want to do that either. What I did have some interest in doing was hosting. I watched, at the time, loads of Discovery Channel shows and loads of everything else that has any kind of person talking head on a screen, and I thought, I could do that. I'd be good at that. I know I would. And, and that seems exciting. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anybody to, to help me get into that world. I sent in demo videos here and there. Once in a while, somebody would say, oh, yeah, you're pretty good. Um, the bottom line was I knew that before I would be able to walk into a Travel Channel audition and get any kind of role, I could do it myself. And a couple of things came together. I'd had a little bit of money put aside. I had some people I was close to, a couple of relatives die, and they left me a decent little chunk of money. So I quit my corporate job, bought a round the world flight, traveled for two months, and started the Peregrine Dame as a web series. Nobody watched it, it was pretty bad. <laughs> but, but that was in, I traveled then in 2008. Two years before that, I'd taken a trip by myself for three weeks. And people in the U.S., almost to a person, a couple of exceptions, just went, oh, oh my God, isn't that scary? Were you in trouble? Did anything bad happen to you? It, just, it was just this gigantic you know, fountain of fear that would come out of people when they found out you'd gone across the globe by yourself, um, especially as a female. Interestingly, a lot of those reactions were from men, <laughs> which I thought was like, there were all these people going, ah! and I just thought, oh, for God's sake, and I got so sick of the, I got so sick of the, uh, of the reaction, 
two years later in 2008, once I quit the job and started traveling and, and meaning to shoot footage, intending to use it for a host reel or a web series, ended up using it for a web series. One, I couldn't afford any kind of crew, so forget that. And two, I realized that if it, I knew that the angle should be trying to convince an American audience that the rest of the world was not really out to get them. And I'm not gonna negate that there are problems out there. Um, clearly there are problems in this country for a lot of us as far as safety and security goes. So I just thought that's, such, that's just bullshit. I'm going to go, I'm going to shoot this, I can do this myself. And then when people go, <laughs> is that scary? I can say, look, no, it's not. Um, and that was the impetus for it. The, the exposition to this story is that within a few years, I had enough shot to put together some half hour episodes. Somebody at a startup cable, like a startup over the top internet network in Florida got a hold of me and said, we'd love to, to air the series. They were a startup, so they promptly folded because that's what they do. But I was sitting on a bunch of these half hour long shows because in the interim, I'd come to LA, I'd work as a temp, I'd go back out and travel, I'd shoot some more. I had, like, before it was over with, I had 10 or 11 half hour episodes because I had done another, in 2012, another two month long trip to shoot more stuff. And I'm just sitting on them, you know, and I've sunk all, I produced it, so it was my money. I lost my shirt doing it at that point, um, but I had this product. So I got a hold of a public television distribution company on the East Coast didn't take it to Travel Channel or any of the cable networks because I'd worked in entertainment. I knew that they would make me sign a waiver and then they would, in a year or so, pop up a show with a solo travel host that shot his or her own stuff. I wouldn't be a host. I probably wouldn't even be on the production team um, because nobody knew me. I didn't have a name. I wasn't Samantha Brown. She was already Samantha Brown. They would have found someone else they liked better. Um, on camera, I have a little bit more of a journalisticy kind of presence. It's not Travel Channel style stuff. So I just went, no, I know, I know what they'll do. They'll take my show. So forget them. I'm not even going to go that route. I went the public television route. With public television, the producer bears the sole responsibility of raising the funding, the underwriting, and any money the show brings in. And so that was the very hardest part. Because by the time I got to the second season, I had a sales agent. We could never find funding for the second season, which is why I did two seasons and decided to go to school to get a journalism degree. The bottom line was from 2014 to 2018, the, both seasons aired at different times, different, covered about 70% of the public market, PBS, member station market space. It's very good for a television series in that realm. Um, and the more I traveled and the more I met people and the more I put together interviews and shows about people, the more I got the bug to tell nonfiction stories. And I wanted to be able to do that from a more serious place. So I thought, oh, I need a journalism degree because if I ever want anybody to pay me to keep doing this, aside from me, uh, I needed the credentials and I needed the training. I mean, it's one thing to go out and host a show. It's another to deal with the, you know, the ethics and, um, and all of the, the, bolts, the nuts and bolts of journalism and real reporting. So now I can do both. I mean, I'll do travel journalism until I can't, you know, hobble onto a plane anymore, I suppose. But I also wanted to be able to do other things, do more serious news with a foreign, in foreign correspondence and international reporting.
that's what I'm doing, except I'm going to spend my summer in Oregon. So <laughs> I suppose baby steps because I'm not going international yet. Although my next um, step, because I wanted a specialty within reporting past travel, I am going to London in September for a master's degree um, that will take me a year. And it's in anthropology, environment, and development, because ultimately I would like to specialize in, in the serious reporting that I do in environment and climate. Excuse me. So that's what my next year, year and a half looks like. And how long has it been since you've been in school? Oh, I graduated two weeks ago. I just did. Yeah. I wow. started, I, I mean, you remember San Diego. I don't think any of us went to college. It was just so sort of like, well, we can work and there's money. So why do that? Um, I always loved being a student and I was a good student when I was one, when I was a kid, but, uh, it just wasn't the right time and the right thing for me until I got done with the second season of the Peregrine Dame. I came home and I knew within that next year I was going to start school seriously. I had taken at 29 or 30, I started taking anthropology classes at one of the community colleges here in LA just to blow the cobwebs out. And it was fascinating. And I spent years taking classes in anthropology and journalism at the community college level here, not intending to get a degree at all. I wasn't going to go. I just wanted to learn the skills to help me put a better show together. And that was great because it did do that for me. Um, but I got home, I think it was 2015. And I started looking at my transcript and I was like, I'm halfway to a bachelor's. So I did a year and a half at our local community college, LA Valley College, Woo. finished the prerequisites I needed to, found out what it would take to apply to transfer into USC, was encouraged to do so for several reasons. And I'm fortunate because I thought I would be at the very nice, very good state university near me. Um, but USC said, yes, I ticked a lot of, of non-traditional student boxes for them, I think. Um, and I had good grades and not a lot of money at the time. And they said, don't worry about it. So I finished, I did in the end three full years at SC and graduated May 15th. <laughs> now I get to do the traditional journalism track. So you graduate as a senior and then you do an internship in a newsroom. I had a professor write me a couple of weeks ago at the last minute and someone she knew, an editor at a tiny rural southeastern oregon newspaper a weekly that has a really robust digital footprint and has become profitable uh, had an intern drop out and she said look you should at least apply because this guy has been you know a pulitzer finalist he knows what he's doing he does very good work he used to be a, a journalist at the oregonian like the, the all the bona fides were there so we talked and i submitted an application and he said sure come on up so i'm going to uh I'm going to be their multimedia intern for 10 weeks. <laughs> wow. And then your exploring continues because you're going to London. Yeah. Yeah. The, the university, I'm going to University College London, and they said, we're still doing this. We'll start on time. We may do some courses online, but, but head on over because you're starting at the end of September. So, yeah. so for right now, everything is... Everything is still happening. Did you do an internship in Utah? How did <laughs> that was actually a course that partnered us? The let's see, my first spring semester at USC, 
at the end of those semesters, our, our journalism school anyway, has all kinds of um, immersion courses you can do in case you're just, in case you're just sadistic enough um, to want to um, keep going. After the entire school year, you can work for two to four more weeks. <laughs> it's awesome. So I did both, both of the first two years I was there, but, but they were absolutely some of the best courses we had because they were practical courses. Uh, six students and two of my professors went to tiny southeast, the southeast corner of Utah to San Juan County and interned, you know, basically just busted our homes for two solid weeks with um, another tiny weekly newspaper. Uh, and that county is, is fascinating for a lot of reasons. It's pretty diverse. A large part of the Navajo Nation overlaps with it. Part of the Hopi and Ute reservations overlap. So the cultures are, are thick and uh, the politics are amazing. <laughs> we covered a lot of politics. So, um, so I wanted to do this again in Vail and do this with the, the, the Malheur Enterprise because the one rural reporting um, and news organizations in what we call news deserts are becoming scarcer and scarcer. Um, a lot of these little places only will get television news from the next big city, which has nothing to do with them or very little in some cases. So what I've seen between like the San Juan record and the Malheur Enterprise are these scrappy, small, but reputable news organizations that have fought tooth and nail and some have managed to actually get traction and become profitable and serve the communities that, that they're actually meant to be serving rather than, you know, the next biggest newspaper that you could get. You know, in Utah, it was the Salt Lake Tribune. It was, it was six hours away um, in the capital. So these small places across the country um, really, really need these outlets. And some good veteran journalists like Les Zeitz, who's the editor-in-chief of the Malheur Enterprise, have, <laughs> he's supposed to be retired now, but he just can't quite do it. Um, for good reason, because he sees these needs. So these, these niches are slowly, even though a lot of, of places have lost these outlets, a lot of them are getting them back slowly but surely, and that's good. So the bottom line there is pay for your news, because especially if you're in one of these small places, they have to have it. They have to have it. The news sources that I trust are either boutique or they survive based on one particular funder that appreciates like the intercept that's one of the places i trust the most is is intercept because they'll be objective i know that a lot of journalists will say there's no such thing as objectivity but uh no, but i think no. i think it's it's one of those things you know we have in journalism schools today uh and i know what we did certainly we spent a lot of time in classes with young, and my classmates are half my age. They are 2021, 20, and they're going to be running these organizations, you know, for the foreseeable future, pretty shortly, actually. Um, so we have had those conversations of: Is this objective? Are we even capable of being objective? Um, and we almost always shift the the dialogue from objectivity to fairness. We spend a lot of time, believe it or not, because I know some people will watch things like cable news, which I don't watch at all, and think, oh, they, they're totally biased. But we do, believe it or not, spend a lot of time in those classes uh, identifying 
ourselves and our own biases. You know, we listed our identities. You listed the intersections of those identities. You spent time talking about your own vulnerabilities. Um, and then we, we certainly had the conversations around, okay, as, as young journalists, especially for them, how do we change these behemoth legacy news organizations that claim to be objective, but we know they have a bent. And what I think the American public who hasn't been in a journalism class doesn't quite realize, unless they were alive 120 years ago, is that we've seen these cyclical waves in American journalism. At the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, if you looked at a newsstand when they still existed, you would see hundreds of newspapers. And in a, at the bare minimum, even for a small town, you'd see dozens. Each one had an editorial bent. Each one had a platform. Most were, there was no, no pretense of objectivity none of them so each one of us could go pick that thing you'd get your own newspaper every day that just spoke to you and that's how it happened and then as radio and television came along and we were left mid-20th century with these two or three these three big networks that all of a sudden wanted the most eyeballs possible then the word objectivity started to surface because they didn't want to fragment people and piss them off and make them go somewhere else. So they claimed to be objective and middle of the road. And some were actually middle of the road um, in an effort to keep the most eyeballs and the most listeners possible because they knew otherwise you could go find your little newspaper that reinforced just your opinion and go back to that and be in your own bubble. So the bubbles that we see today aren't new. They just feel shockingly new to us because we haven't seen it before. You know, that's really worthwhile, uh, a really worthwhile point, because I am myself am guilty, and I don't realize it until someone shines a light on it, of looking at things for, in a, from a linear point of view. And so with regard to journalism, the only thing I, I was aware of was, you know, at one point, there were over 100 different companies that, that were in charge of information. Networks knew they were taking a financial loss because this was a public service because we own the public airwaves. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, greedy fingers got in there and now we've got five or six companies that control the flow of information. But you're, you're really helping me see that like this, like this is a problem for sure, but like this is a, a cyclical problem. I didn't, yeah, I didn't it's look not a it. new problem. Yeah, it not, it's not a new problem. It's just a new medium for us. So it seems like a much bigger existential problem because oh, we've never seen it, but it's, it has happened before. You just had to go down the block and go to a newsstand to, you know, to, you know, to see it in action. But um, yeah, I mean, I also, I can't offer any more hope at this point because, you know, in our classes sitting around with 300, you know, undergrad journalism students, we didn't answer the question. Like we didn't answer the we haven't found the solutions. Um, but I can say being around people that age now for the last four and a half years, uh, I have a lot more hope that we actually will get there because at least the people that I have just had the experience with, uh, they're sharp, they care, they are committed. Um, you know, they're, they're not just blowing it off or not taking it seriously. They actually do engage with everything that's going on around them. and. Uh, it's, it's made me a lot more um, optimistic about some of the, the things we have to look forward to. And in the end, I think we'll get to fixing some of these issues, but they're never going to totally go away. They've always been there. So, you know, you have a really unique experience, but a unique, unique perspective, because there's not a lot of people that 
go back to school when they get older. I wonder about your perspective with these younger people. There is a unlimited potential, I believe, with the younger generations, as there always should be. But the kids could either end up saying, the world's going to hell, so I'm going to play video games, and that's where all my focus is going to go into this escapism. Or they can go other directions. But one of the directions they certainly are going is that these kids are seeing how much nonsense is institutionalized in our world, and they're questioning it. And did you find a lot of that going to school at this age? Oh, yeah. Yeah, tons. I mean, there are, there are certainly, I certainly saw the students who were interested in being the fair journalist, middle of the road, keeping it straight, reporting news, but wanting to shine a light on the corruption, the institutional racism, the things like that. And then you also saw the ones who were like, no, I'm going to be an activist journalist. I'm not even going to pretend that, that I'm cool with just reporting on this stuff. We're doing this to change things. I also saw one young girl who, not even girl, she's one young woman. She and I became friends over the couple of years. Um, she started and finished a journalism degree to be a journalist. And then partway through, after taking a heck of a lot of international relations courses, was like, I, I can do more good over there. So I'm not even going to stick to my original major. I'm going to work into these other fields because I know I can accomplish more that way and change more that way. So virtually everybody I met has some, some plan to change something concrete yeah, before it's over with. They That's... really are very sharp. And I can't, well, I mean, I'm in a journalism school and then I also spend time in the anthropology department. So those students may have a different sensibility than some others in other schools. Um, and USC has 23 different schools, I think. So I can't speak for every, every university student there, but the ones I had contact with, yeah. Yeah, they, they mean it. They're, they're bent on, on changing a lot of the stuff. They've, they've just been sort of, you know, they've had it stuffed to the, what, fallen in their lap, I guess. That's inspiring. It's good to know. Because mm -hmm. we I need, so. yeah, we need the change, and, and they could buckle under the weight of our world, or they could say, "Screw this." Yeah. No, I think you know they seem to really understand that they still have some time. Not much, but they still are like, "We can still fix it." So nobody, nobody that I came across had despaired. Not yet. Anyway. Yeah. Well, this has been refreshing, Rachel, on a personal level. Like I'm, I'm sitting here just going. Like this, there's this familiarity again, like familial mm -hmm. thing, and it's been forever. I know, so. I, it's flown too, so I'm glad. I am also glad we've done this because it's been, I didn't realize quite how long it had been. Yeah, do me a favor and uh, tell your mom that I said hi. And <laughs>